0: Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in.
1: I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Ye Olde Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history.
0: It's the final episode of this podcast series. Thanks so much for being with us through taxes, riots, parties, battles, and lots of yummy beer. We pick up this final episode in 1775 with a beer, and we're going to end in 1776 with another beer.
1: First is our Connector IPA from Switchback Brewing Company in Burlington, Vermont. It's 6.2% ABV and in a 22-ounce big bottle. So Brooke will be twirling this around a bit. And I'm literally twirling the bottle. <laughs> like a baton. <laughs> and then pouring it into our glasses. We will explain why after she gets it open and we do our huzzah. Okay.
0: Look at that. Oh. Huzzah! huzzah!
1: Mmm, delicious. So, before we talk about what this tastes like, though, I have to say the first thing you would notice if you were drinking this beer is it is unabashedly unfiltered. <laughs> There's literally visible yeast floaties in our glasses.
0: Yes, that's why I was twirling to sort of mix them back up, but you can still see them. We're not afraid of them, though. Nope, it's intended to be drunk this way, yeast and
1: beer. So the reason that this is the case is all switchback beers are naturally carbonated and conditioned. So they don't add any CO2, it's all done by the yeast. So you're going to see a lot of it in there because that's what they need to make sure that it is properly carbonated
0: it's really striking I mean sometimes I can follow like the bubbles of a champagne glass but in this case I just like kind of following the floaties knowing it's safe Brooke has this like big smile (laughs) on her face too it's quite fun I love that we're doing something new for our last
1: episode let me take another sip some tasting notes this is really earthy Yes. You know, like really hoppy. You get a lot more of those sort of natural flavors. There's not a
0: big fruit that comes out or anything like that. It is dry. Yes, I'm really relying on you to describe this because there's no tasting note that's jumping out at me, Mm -hmm. which happens a lot. Well, if you have a sip, you can definitely get a finish on this beer. It is Mm -hmm. very bitter. Just sort of leaves you like... Mouth clicking good? Yeah, but some IPAs are just too bitter, like just for the sake of being bitter, it seems. This is bitter, but it's nice.
1: Mm. Okay, so this beer, unfortunately, for those of you that don't live in Vermont, it is only available there at the moment. We They were nice enough to send it to us, which is why we have it. Yeah, and we know about Switchback Brewery because we have offered their flagship beer, the Switchback Amber, on our tours before. Yeah, it's an awesome beer. It's, it's really delicious. One of my favorites, and that is available throughout New England, hopefully more places soon, because it's a great brewery. We appreciate them. Thank you for providing us with this beer. So we chose the connector today to highlight our key player (laughs) he's a connector so why don't we get to him and we will talk about our second beer when the moment arises
0: okay so i'm excited for this episode because we're really bringing it home today closing out this chapter of british conflict in boston and we have two beers so that's exciting too A few days after the battles of Lexington and Concord, Paul Revere, Dr. Benjamin Church, and Dr. Joseph Warren were gathered in Cambridge, rehashing the details of the battles. Revere and Warren have been key players, so now it's Church's turn. You remember him from episode seven when he was part of the crowd that targeted Richard Clark leading up to the Boston Tea Party? I totally remember he wrote a fun (laughs) song. Yeah, that's good. In this conversation with Warren and Revere, Church was making a scene. He had shown a bloody stocking of his to Revere as evidence of being in the middle of the fight. According to Revere, the blood, quote, had spurted on him from a man who was killed near church. Revere thought that that showed a man who was committed to the cause. I mean, he had bloody stockings, after all. But now Church wanted to go into besieged Boston, which did not make any sense.
1: Right. Remember at the end of episode 9, we talked about how the British were occupying the town of Boston and there was really deleterious conditions.
0: Yeah, disgusting. And certainly any rebel leader who went in and was found there would be captured. However, Church went into besieged Boston and had a breezy time navigating through, even stopping at General Gage's residence and fraternizing with him. Sketchy! Super sketchy. Regardless of this recent weirdo behavior, though, (laughs) Dr. Benjamin Church was a trusted member of the rebels inner circles, bloody stockings and all. He had attended the top schools, Boston Latin and Harvard College. We've mentioned those schools a bunch before. Several of our key players went to school there. Church was even a classmate of Hancock's. Revere claimed that Church was, quote, a high son of liberty. He frequented all the places where they met, was encouraged by all the leaders of the Sons of Liberty. So he's in. Church was witty and wrote political satires, as Kristen mentioned. Usually they poked fun at loyalists and British policies. Church was one of the most well-trained doctors in Boston, far surpassing the medical training of Joseph Warren. So much so that the Second Continental Congress appointed Church the Director and Chief Physician of the Army Hospital. Baller! Um, yes, baller. However, (laughs) Church has some personal flaws to balance the positive baller traits that he has. Church had a lifestyle that he couldn't afford. In 1768, for example, Church built a massive summer home overlooking a large pond in Raynham Massachusetts. He was constantly strapped for cash during the construction of this country home. And on top of that, Church also had a mistress, problematic, whom he'd gotten pregnant. And he's financially supporting her as well, which racked up even more debt. Yikes, does
1: not sound like he's in a good situation.
0: OK, it gets worse. <laughs> I have a hard time telling you this. Okay, (laughs) these weren't Church's only flaws. The worst of them was his duplicity because, dun dun dun, Dr. Benjamin Church was a spy who regularly sold rebel secrets to General Gage.
1: What? A real spy?
0: A real spy, seriously. It's not clear when Church began his treasonous activities. Effective spies don't typically leave behind a pile of information or evidence, but one biographer believes he began spying as early as 1772. Traitor. Total traitor. It's outrageous, isn't it? Okay, also, I'm looking at this beer, about to take a sip. This is why he's the connector, because he's connecting rebel secrets to the British. A bad connector. Sorry like this beer. I know, I was gonna say <laughs> sorry, switchback. We love you. Okay, spies usually turn their coats for money, which church we know needed when Church had gone into Boston shortly after the battles of Lexington and Concord, he'd gone to talk with Gage because the British had gotten trounced in Concord and Church feared that Gage would accuse him of sending British troops into a trap and cutting off his money if Gage doesn't want his secrets anymore. Church wanted to reassure Gage of his loyalty to him. (laughs) (laughs) After the battles of Lexington and Concord, Gage was in distress, needing all the help he could get even from loser Church. He pled with Lord Dartmouth for more troops, believing another battle could soon break out. Gage predicted that, quote, to carry on a war with effect against this country, not less than 15,000 men should be employed, which was more than double the amount of troops that Gage currently had. Dartmouth, all the way in England, doubted Gage's claim and was slow to send reinforcements.
1: Gage is in a tough spot here, but I have to ask Brooke. Is he gonna attempt another powder raid? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank goodness for us all, no, he's not. He is eyeing two hills surrounding Boston because at this point, gaining high ground was a sound military tactic. Both he and the colonists believed the hills would be the key to taking control of the town. The hills were Dorchester Heights and Bunker Hill in Charlestown. Charlestown was a small town across the harbor from Boston with a population of about two to 3,000 inhabitants. With armed conflict, now in Massachusetts, Gage knew he should grab hold of the high ground of Charlestown, but (laughs) Gage did not act, and the colonists did. On June 16th, around midnight, several hundred provincials under Colonel William Prescott marched to Charlestown and built a fort that was about five to six feet high. There was no moon that night, which was both a blessing and a curse. The darkness minimized their chance of being spotted by the British. But they also couldn't see well enough to realize that they were building their fort on a hill that wasn't Bunker Hill. Are you kidding? Um, no. (laughs) The colonists noticed their error around dawn, and it was a big mistake.
1: How do you build on the
0: wrong hill? Were they drunk? So fortifications on top of Bunker Hill would have been a defensive move. But putting the fort on the much closer and lower Breeds Hill made theirs an offensive position. Breeds was close enough for provincial cannons to reach Boston's north end and Boston Harbor, where the British naval ships patrolled. Early the next morning, on June 17, 1775, the British saw the rebels' fort and decided to attack. A new general would lead. William Howe had arrived in Boston a month earlier to help General Gage, who many in London had lost faith in. Shocker. I know, Howe planned to launch a frontal assault around three o'clock that afternoon. He's not hesitating. The rebels were mostly in a strong position before the battle. They had the high ground and had more soldiers than the British. The British had approximately 23 to 2,400 regular soldiers, while the colonists had between 2,500 and 3,000 men. And one of those men was Joseph Warren. He was the only man involved in the highest ranks of Boston's rebel circles to actually fight in the war so far.
1: Yeah, Warren, he was our key player in episode six, and we called him a triple threat because he was smart, handsome, and brave. We were also drinking a triple threat beer so let's drink our connector though not in support of stupid <laughs> church.
0: stupid church <laughs> they may have worn but they're gonna be short on ammunition you remember from episode eight that great britain had stopped sending gunpowder to massachusetts when conflict seemed imminent Prescott warned his men to conserve gunpowder because their feeble supply would not last in a sustained battle. Rebel muskets had ranges of perhaps 150 feet, so they shouldn't fire wildly whenever they wanted. They needed to wait until the redcoats were at least within that 150 feet range. A version of this order has become a part of American legend, with an officer telling his men not to, quote, fire until you see the whites of their eyes. I've heard that. You've heard that. Sadly, there's no evidence of this order being given that afternoon, but the soldiers were told to wait to fire and aim low, ensuring a bullet would hit the enemy's hips and they'd make the most of this low gunpowder supply. So we've got General Howe and his soldiers ready to launch a frontal attack. The colonists are in their fort on the top of Breed's Hill, and the battle is about to begin. We'll tell you about the bloodiest battle of the Revolutionary War when we come back from this short break. If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast, and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. Kristen, I'm not a military strategist, but I know that if your enemy has the high ground, a frontal assault is going to be deadly. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But that's precisely what the British did. Of course. Twice. Of course. <laughs> the colonists mowed them down, but their steady firing caused a rapid depletion of their gunpowder. Another, of course, was in line yeah,
1: there. <laughs> yeah, I earned on that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> After two trips up the hill, Howe changed his strategy. For the third attempt, his men would no longer march up the hill in lines, but in columns. Howe further instructed his soldiers to take off their packs before they went up.
1: This also seems super obvious. It's not going to be as easy to hit them when they're in columns instead of spread out in lines. And they took a bunch of weight off walking up a
0: steep hill. Yeah, they're a little nimbler now, a little harder to hit. And the Redcoats have an additional but macabre advantage this time up the hill. The dead or dying bodies of their comrades provided cover from the shooting. (sighs) On the third British assault, the rebels ran out of gunpowder and the Redcoats eventually climbed into the fort. Provincials were left to use their muskets as clubs, and Prescott ordered his men to retreat. With that, the Battle of Bunker Hill, as it became known later, was over. The Redcoats won and claimed the high ground. But the British suffered far more casualties than the colonists. 226 British soldiers were killed and 8 128 were wounded, a casualty rate of close to half of their men. Wow. Half. Worse than that, the British officers were killed at a much higher rate than regular soldiers. Gage wrote, quote, The number of the killed and wounded is greater than our force can afford to lose. We have lost some extraordinary good officers. The British Army had unintentionally put their officers in grave and visible danger. Here's why. British private soldiers wore red coats. We know that. (laughs) Yes, that were made of a different fabric and dye than officers' coats. So the coats of private soldiers faded in the sun to a pale pink. But officers' coats were made with a more expensive fabric, and their coats remained a bright red. This difference in fabric dramatically influenced the Battle of Bunker Hill as colonists aimed for the reddest of coats.
1: This is such an interesting detail, but really sad. You know, we talked about fashion being political back in Episode 6 with Homespun, but here fashion turns deadly.
0: At the end of the battle, the colonists had less than half of the British casualties. 115 men were killed, 270 wounded, and 30 captured but one of those casualties was Joseph Warren.
1: Brooke, this is her second major disappointment. I know, sorry. First church is a traitor and now you're telling me Joseph Warren is dead?
0: I know, I'm gonna have good news later. In this episode, you're just going to have to stay with me. I do understand. It's terrible. <sighs> Warren was caught in the fort when the Redcoats climbed in. He was using a sword to fend off the soldiers when an officer recognized him. This is really hard to hear. The officer's servant shot Warren in the face. <clears throat> Samuel Adams heard the news when he was in Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress and wrote, quote, I sincerely lament the loss of our truly amiable and worthy friend. Couldn't have said it better myself, Sam. Warren's death so early in the war was a tremendous blow to rebel circles, who would miss his leadership, energy, bravery, and dramatic flair.
1: Here, here, let's have a moment of silence for our friend Warren. Maybe drink some beer. In fact, I need a refill, so it seems like a good enough time.
0: Okay. Huzzah, Warren. Oh, huzzah, Warren. Mm. Warren's the real connector, not you, Church. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, when London learned of the Battle of Bunker Hill, they were stunned. No battle during the French and Indian War had come close to matching the casualty total of Bunker Hill. Gage wrote to London a week after the battle and had a reflective tone about him. He sounds similar to Percy's epiphany after the Battle of Concord. Gage warned Lord Dartmouth. Remember, Lord Dartmouth had lost all faith in Gage anyway, and here Gage is giving him this advice that Dartmouth probably isn't going to take. He says that they both may have underestimated the colonists for, quote, The rebels are not the despicable rabble too many have supposed them to be. So (laughs) it's showing you that Dartmouth thinks that colonists are rabble. Gage finally now seems to understand that shutting down the rebellion wouldn't be the simple affair he believed it would be when he arrived in Boston a year earlier to enforce the coercive acts. He wrote to Dartmouth, quote, the conquest of this country is not easy and can be affected only by time and perseverance. That's very aware of him. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> I know it doesn't matter for Gage anyway. He can have all the epiphanies he wants. But in the fall of 1775, Gage's time is up and he's out. Now, meanwhile, powerful men in Philadelphia were discussing what to do after the battles of Lexington and Concord. Massachusetts proposed raising a Continental Army, which had never existed in the colonies before, given their fear of standing armies. The Massachusetts delegates were ultimately able to convince Congress, and that sounds like a no-brainer, like raise an army, get a general, but some of the other colonies were suspicious that Massachusetts had motives just for themselves, so it wasn't a small feat to get other delegates on board. Nevertheless, they all name George Washington General of the Continental Army.
1: Who's this new character? <laughs>
0: Never <laughs> heard of him before? No. Nope. General George Washington was a wealthy and genteel Virginia, and he made his way from Philly to Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was the Army's headquarters, and he was not pleased with what he saw or heard. He was briefed on the Battle of Bunker Hill and devastated to learn that the colonists had lost simply because they ran out of ammunition. Under his own command, Washington predicted that, quote, the regulars would have met with a shameful defeat. Um, Apparently, Washington seems to believe he possesses the power to manifest more gunpowder in the middle of a battle. Well,
1: Brooke, there is a history of witches in New England.
0: (laughs) Too bad for Washington he doesn't have magical powers because he had very little confidence in the undisciplined militia. Washington described the officers as, quote, the most indifferent kind of people I ever saw." End quote. And the soldiers as quote, in exceeding... <laughs> Can you get it out? I can't. He's so <laughs> he's mean. He's so rude. In exceeding dirty and nasty people. <laughs> right. Washington described the soldiers as quote, in exceeding dirty and nasty people.
1: He really is a jerk.
0: Yeah, he has serious attitude when he arrives. In addition to his supposedly disappointing troops, in the fall of 1775, the man Washington trusted with the medical care of his soldiers was caught as a spy. Church's treachery was discovered when he trusted his mistress to pass on a ciphered letter for him. She didn't know how to get the correspondence into the hands of the right people and gave it to her ex-husband who turned the letter over to the Continental Army for investigation. That's
1: why you don't have a mistress, Church. You can't trust him.
0: The only reason, right, Kristen? The only one. The simple code was easily cracked. I mean, how pathetic it's a simple code, too. The colonies, though, had no policy for what to do with a spy. They weren't yet their own country, so officially a treason charge would be against the king. But Washington thought it best to isolate him. Church was imprisoned for the next two years. You'll be pleased to know that he was ultimately allowed to sail for the Caribbean, never able to return to the colonies. But the ship was lost at sea.
1: Sorry to the rest of the ship's crew and their family and friends, but bye, church! Bye!
0: Earlier this episode, I mentioned two critical hills in Boston. Breeds Hill in Charlestown, we know what went down there, and Dorchester Heights. The British occupied Charlestown, so Washington's team recommended that they occupy the 100-foot-tall Dorchester Heights to break the siege of Boston. Washington had wanted a direct attack on Boston, but thankfully his advisors urged a different tactic—take the heights. To avoid being spotted, Washington's men transported the cannons up Dorchester Heights at night. Much like the surprise of fortifications sprouting up one morning on Breeds Hill, the British looked up on March 5th, which was the sixth anniversary of the Boston Massacre, by the way, to see that Dorchester Heights had been occupied with cannons, trained down on Boston and its harbor, capable of blowing it to bits. Howe thought about attacking, but said the, quote, boisterous weather prohibited it. Boisterous weather in Boston? In March? Huh. Huh. (laughs) Crazy. Howe writes, quote, I could promise myself little success by attacking them under all the disadvantages I had to encounter. So on March 8, 1776, Howe sent a letter to Washington saying that he would retreat from Boston and not burn the town down in the process. Thank you, Howe. (laughs) If his troops were allowed to leave safely, Washington agreed approximately 1000 loyalists and the last of the british troops evacuated boston on the morning of march 17th 1776 never to return
1: woo today this is known as evacuation day in boston and it's an easy day to remember because it also happens to be st patrick's day march Party 17th. time. it also brings us to our bonus beer for today victory at sea from Ballast Point Brewery in San Diego. Brooke?
0: Yes? Did you have something to do with this (laughs) selection? Maybe a teeny bit. I'm originally from San Diego. I was itching to get a San Diego brewery on here. Ballast Point has been brewing delicious beers for a really long time. They have a few breweries throughout San Diego that are really fun to visit when I head back west. So I'm glad we've got one here. I'm going to get it opened up. Yes. Kristen, that's yours. Thank okay. You. Huzzah! Woo.
1: So, this is an imperial porter. Comes in at a pretty hefty 10%, though I can't really taste that because this is infused with peanut butter and local San Diego coffee. Boy, do I smell the peanut butter!
0: I taste the coffee really heavily. By the way, imperial porters, we talked about that in episode three we when did. we featured a non-imperial porter.
1: Right, that was an American porter. Imperial porters originally were favorites of the imperial regime in Russia, hence the name. This is definitely more creamy than our episode three porter, but I have to say it's a pretty winning combination because I don't get some of the really heavy notes you will often get with imperial porters. I think I can just maybe finish my glass before we get to the end of this episode. Yeah, and
0: I know you taste more peanut butter, but it doesn't taste like a peanut butter beer. It's just, to me, like at the end of the tasting.
1: Right, it does have a nice carbonation that I think cuts through Mm. some of those heavier flavors, so it really makes it drinkable. But we are drinking this victory beer
0: to get to our victory, so bring us home, Brooke. Okay, with pleasure. After 15 months under siege, Boston would never again be occupied by redcoats. Samuel Adams proclaimed his joy over, quote, the removal of the barbarians from the capital." While Samuel Adams allowed himself to celebrate, he also wrote, he was right back to business, and also wrote about, quote, the necessity of proclaiming independency. The Second Continental Congress didn't wait that much longer. They approved a resolution for independence on July 2nd, 1776. Why didn't we declare a resolution of independency? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Two days later, Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence, written primarily by Thomas Jefferson, but modified by two Massachusetts natives, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. And then it was signed by a man that personified Boston, President of the Second Continental Congress, John Hancock. Huzzah! Huzzah! Woo! We want to extend our sincerest appreciation to you for listening We had so much fun recording.
1: And now we're off to drink more beer.
0: If, as you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking you'd like to learn more about this subject, we have a couple easy suggestions. This podcast is based on a book I wrote, Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. I love the subtitle. It's a really accessible read and also features key players, so you'll feel right at home reading it. Kristen and I are also part of a fabulous team of historian tour guides for Yule Tavern Tours. So join one of our tours for local craft beers, talk of revolutionary Boston, and seeing historic sites along Boston's Freedom Trail. We also have short videos on Yield Tavern Tours website called History in a Minute. They feature lots of the people and historic sites we mentioned today and throughout this podcast. We'll link to all of those in the show notes.